Good. Would like to request your attention for some clarifications. You've heard me speak about sati, about uh, some of its facets. Mm, you may recall some of the images that the suttas uh, give us of this uh, quality of mind. Um, images that are quite bewildering in some ways, insofar as we don't have a, a simple and clear linguistic equivalent for that quality of mind. It is both dynamic insofar as it is capable of following something, it, it is volitional insofar as it is capable to foreground something and background something else, it is stabilizing insofar as it is acting as the foundation of stillness, of samadhi, um, it is inquisitive as the edge of that which is known, uh, insofar as it is the, the threshold of knowing, pre-verbal knowing for that matter. It is spacious insofar as it is capable of creating a large-scale awareness rather than just a focused, uh, pinpointed, um, uh, topical quality of attention. It's important to recognize that some of these facets play a role in where we are in our practice. So if you're practicing samadhi, then the key issue is to stabilize the mind. Many things that come up that might be worthy of de delving into and uh, trying to understand and disentangle and gain insight in, uh, are simply put aside. And the task of sati at this stage of practice is to put it, things aside, to stabilize the mind, to focus attention, to return and return and return. It doesn't actually matter how many times you return. What does matter is that you do return. Um, as is doesn't matter how long it took you to walk. It is important that when we learn to walk that we do not stop before we are able to do so. And a few years later nobody's going to ask how long it took us to walk. It doesn't matter whether we were completely below or completely ahead of the national average of, um, you know, babies learning how to walk. Some of them do that quite early, some of them are months later. Later on, this does not really matter much. The same way, it doesn't really matter much how difficult it is to practice mindfulness with, say, the breath, returning to a chosen object, having a clear perception of your meditative anchor. That's one of the tasks of sati. And what may be a dramatic experience, namely that it doesn't work or that it works beautifully, is actually of a lot less significance than one tends to assume. Uh, what is of significance is your willingness and your tenacity and your capability and your patience and your, humili yeah, your humility to come back to a task that you may find easy or that you may find difficult, but that you do nevertheless come back to.
As I have said, the sati in some way is the seed quality out of which grow insight, the whole development of wisdom, the whole panya bhavana project. Sati is the seed quality for ethics. You need some awareness of what happens to others to be able to be empathetic. At the same time, you need to be aware of some of the stuff you're doing. Sometimes we are highly aware of what others do, but we're not terribly aware of what we do. So sati is of crucial importance there. There's no ethics without sati. And at the same time, our ethical awareness strongly increases our sati. Sati is crucial in terms of stillness. It is the raw material for samadhi. So the, the capacity of sati to identify a task and stay with that task, even fix the mind on a particular topic, on a particular theme, on a particular nimitta. Here is where the notion of the term nimitta as a meditation object and the notion of the term nimitta as a sign for our attention converge. It is necessary that we learn to focus our minds on a particular nimitta um, and strengthen that relationship to that nimitta, to that object as opposed to many other possible objects to which we could divert our attention. That is the crucial beginning of stillness. That is the crucial beginning of samadhi. So sati is there in terms of sila, ethics, in terms of samadhi, unification of mind, in terms of wisdom, vipassana or panyam. And finally sati is there, uh, the, the root quality in terms of the brahma-viharas, because it is with those brahma-viharas uh, we begin to resonate. If we do not understand what's happening here, it's very unlikely that we'll understand what's happening elsewhere. Because it is with the apparatus here that we experience the world elsewhere. It is with this heart I understand your heart. It is with this mind I understand your mind. It is with this body I can understand what your body may feel like or undergo or experience. So that translates into different jobs for sati in different stages of our practice. Yeah, when you're practicing samatha, remember samadhi is the state, is the quality of unification of mind. In Buddhism this is a gradual process, it is not a specific state as, as in the yogic tradition where samadhi refers to a specific realization state. In the role of samatha, sati's job is basically to return and develop tenacity, develop simplicity, develop coherence, develop stability. And that means that many of the things that arise other than that, we put down, we put aside, we keep putting aside, we keep saying, hmm, thank you, I've heard you, you have to wait. I go back to the breath or to the body or to the posture or to my metta exercises. That is the samatha aspect or the samatha attitude. And then, you know, sometime into your retreat, if you're having one hour to sit, my suggestion would be you spend half of the time you have at hand on samatha exercises. Let me just be blunt about this. I know many of you are proponents of open awareness and you know, just arise and be aware of it and uh, non-react. 
That is a powerful practice. It's an even more powerful practice if you have a mind that is capable of attending to an object, if you have a mind that is capable of staying with something, if you're not dependent on external objects to arise for you to become aware of something. Because you have learned to be choosing an object of awareness, be that spatial or be that very small, topical, and sustain in a fairly coherent and orchestrated way uh, an attentional focus on that object. Then your open awareness practice will be really powerful. Without such a capacity to attend to an object, stay with an object, say no to possible alternatives, um, I think that open awareness practice is a lot less powerful. That is my take. However, Diligent you are at establishing object focus, object relationship, object type of samatha. Um, You will notice that you will meet resistance, you will meet hindrances, you will meet stuff that doesn't go away, you will meet stuff that seems to keep coming back. And just be more diligent and more dedicated and more focused, doesn't do the job. I gather you all have met that particular point in practice. And it is necessary that we open up and say, fair enough. This is as calm as it gets now. I need to look at more closely what stops me from being even more calm, even more happy, even more together. And it is that moment when a different type of sati is needed, a sati that is willing to measure distance, a sati that is willing to hold soberly, a sati that is willing to actually with intrepidity investigate, you know, probe into, that is willing to be not perfect, that is not shamed, that is not just interested in control and stillness, that is actually interested, what's happening here? You know, this is precious, this is my life. You know, and as far as, if you can't recall any other lives, um, you may, you may have to consider this is your life, this is, this, yeah. (laughs) There isn't maybe, you know, yeah, depending on how you think about this. You know, in the East, people think think of rebirth as a bad thing, you know. It's kind of, you want to get out. It hurts. You get born. You die. You don't get what you want. Here, in the West, rebirth, if people think about rebirth, they find it a little, a little, hard to believe, some of us, and then others find actually quite a relief in it, you know, oh, thank God, I have more time, you know, <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't get lost in the universe. <laughs> so, you know, the whole concept of rebirth is not just a question of whether you believe in this or not, or whether this is what really Buddhism is about, or whether it can be scientifically proven or not. Actually, the whole response to the notion of rebirth is utterly different. While, you know, for Indian traditions across the board, this was the prime horror coming back, being kind of chained onto the wheel again and going into the next round with pain and hope and despair and not getting what you want and birth and death and loss and all this. We, we, um, you know, we don't think of this that way often. Our culture doesn't, we, we think sometimes rebirth is a reassuring thing. You know? Oh, I'll leave a sort of sweet and energetic imprint in the universe you know my i matter my little self and what i do i make this a better planet you know we're all working together on a 
shared evolutionary consciousness. You know, finally we grow together. As you, and, we, and we all wake up together. I like that idea. I've invested years of trying to make communities more conscious, only to find out that communities don't become more conscious. Individuals become more conscious. Communities can stay remarkably stupid. Yeah. If the individuals leave that have been part of that community, that consciousness doesn't necessarily stay with the community. Yeah. Institutions, irrespective of what their brand, don't tend to wake up. Yeah. What wakes up is individuals. It's the power of individuals and the, the communality they create. And if these individuals move away or do something else or, or die, then that consciousness that they have worked towards, that communality they have shared in and contributed to, doesn't necessarily stay behind in the walls and the bricks and the pillars. So, maybe you consider, you know, this, this, this life to be, it matters. It matters what you do. And it matters in which sequence you do it, because you, don't, you may not have as much time as you think. So, that is a good incentive to actually start to investigate the stuff that happens to me. So I've done my samatha bit to the extent possible, and now I'm going to throw in my whole weight into in, in inquiring into the condition of this being here. So, sati in this particular instance now has a different role. It resembles more a, a quality of mind called manasikara, yoniso manasikara, the wise investigation. The ability to turn things in a way that I can understand them more easily. Yeah? So sati in the job of samatha practice is there to basically return. Its major task is clarity of perception of a meditative object. That may be a big process or it may be a small thing. And the tenacity of returning, yeah? the stability of the object focus, the object relationship. If that works, if you've done that in some way, then suddenly the space becomes wide. Out of your object relationships becomes a stabilized awareness, spatial, big, open. That's not because you have called it open awareness. That is just what happens with a stabilized mind, that you have learned to move through a very small uh, needle, eye of the needle kind of thing. Yeah? You move through that and then it opens out again. And you end up with a stabilized awareness that is capable of remaining stable even though differing objects come and disappear, come and disappear. You are object independent in your awareness stability. Then this needs investigating. Whatever arises in there is a valid object of your investigation. So all the stuff you've diligently parked, put aside, packaged and bundled and said maybe later, some of this will happen again. And you will now not package and bundle it and park it, but you'll investigate. If you have six weeks, do three weeks of this. If you have one hour, do half an hour of this. You do that after you have done the stilling of mind. If you notice that your mind becomes less still, if you notice that your mind is lost, scattered, challenged, reeled into a problem uh, that it intended to investigate, 
you just humbly acknowledge, back off and say, okay, need to go back to do some more samadhi. Need to go back to the breath. Need to go back to stability. And then you do that. You go back to stability. And you're willing to shuttle between them. Now you're doing shuttling diplomacy. Yeah? You shuttle between a samatha object with which you start, you're sitting, and calm the mind and give it the sweetness of a familiar object that you have trained yourself in to make it soft, to make it yielding, to make it gentle, to make it confident, to make it bright. And then with that calm, infused brightness, you investigate whatever arises is the legitimate object of your practice. You investigate it not just for what it says, but you investigate behind the label. You know, What is its emotion? What is the soil it grows out of? Rather than talk with the message, you talk with the messenger. And you're trying to get in touch with what that messenger really wants. Not what it says, but what it wants. What it is afraid of. What it is perturbed by. What it is besotted by. And you begin to recognize the deeper need. You begin to recognize the conditioned nature of that. You begin to recognize that this is not always the case. This is called anichanupasi. Something that is not always the case means it's arising and it's ceasing. It's fluctuating. As soon as you have established that reality, you can no longer completely believe in the solidity of that which has arisen. You're following on Kachana Gota's footsteps. Understanding arising truly as it really is, you will never be able to say that things do not exist, that things are completely an illusion. You will never be able to believe that again. If you say, okay, it's conditioned, it's not nice, I seem to have something to do with it, let me investigate um, whether I can act as a better steward for this type of energy. Since it has arisen in my mind, it seems the onus is on me that I take care of this. It doesn't really belong to me, but I seem to have something to do with it. So let me take responsibility for it and see whether I can either let go of it. If I can't let go, I will have to transform it. I will have to learn something about it. I'll have to turn it around. Ajahn Chah's beautiful saying, very simple, ingenious, yeah. Tell you what it sounds in Thai. Tamai di hai man tai. Tamai tai hai man di. If it's not good, let it die. If it doesn't die, you have to turn it into something good. Yeah. So that's the very simple principle with the stuff that we do when we start to practice insight. When we start to practice trying to understand those things that while practicing samatha we have diligently put aside. This is the great advantage that the mind actually does become so more still and also that we only deal with the really important stuff because all the not-so-important stuff has fallen by the wayside. Because it's only the important stuff that comes back. It's the recurrent stuff that we probably need to look at. And then we investigate calmly, soberly, with the help of our capacity of stillness, with the help of our um, capacity to create a distance, with the help of our capacity to know the body and ground and anchor. How these things play together comes out in a very nice image by one of my Thai teachers. His name is Bhikkhu Payuto. He's 
a little more complicated name is Tanjokun Prahma Kunaporn. This is his ecclesiastical title. Uh, he who is endowed by the qualities of Brahma. Brahma is a luminous deity of the Deva realms. Um, and he has coalesced two scriptural images into another image. And his image shows the interplay of Sati and uh, the mind and Yoni Somanasikara, the capacity of wise, uh, appropriate. Uh, transformative investigation and finally of wisdom. So th the image goes like this. There's a, a woman paddling out in her boat to chop, uh, to cut lotuses. Yeah. Lotuses you can obviously, um, you can s sell them and you can eat them. Yeah, they're quite good. Uh, and so for whatever reason she wants her lotuses, she paddles out. She has a small boat and she paddles out into the river. The river has a small current and to hold uh, her boat in that current she needs to anchor her little boat and then she reaches out. Yeah, Lotuses grow above the water line. Uh, don't know, you've probably grown up with water lilies, they stand on top of the surface. Yeah? Lotus, that's the differing thing. A lotus actually grows above the water line. Yeah? So the stem not just reaches the water line and the leaves go onto the water surface, like in the case of a water lily, but actually grow above, and the petals are quite a bit above the water line. So she reaches out of her boat and bends the stems of this lotuses with one hand, and with the other hand she has her knife, yeah, big Thai meat, and she chops them. So let's resolve this analogy. <clears throat> the boat is the mind, yeah? the current is the the associative drift that crosses our mind all the time. The, the anchor she throws out to keep her boat in place is, this is Sati. Yeah? She anchors her boat with the help of Sati. She makes sure that Sati is grounded. And then the arm that bends the lotus stems yeah, is Yoni Somanasikara. It prepares for the action of wisdom. It bundles these stems in such a way that the, the, the wisdom that comes in form of the knife and cutting, that this wisdom is capable of having optimum effect. So Yoni Somanasikara, wise investigation, or wise, a wise attitude, is a very powerful way of turning something just a slight bit so that understanding can cut in in a most optimal way. And sati humbly holds the mind in place there. Yeah? That is the sati in the samatha practice. Without that stability, we're just on the drift. It may feel as if we're doing things. You know? Many of us feel that we're having insights into our process, but you know, to be truly inside in terms of Buddhist psychology, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that we have an insight into our childhood dynamics. I personally think this is a valuable insight. I'm psychotherapist to know to know that there are valuable insights to be gained into one's own socialization and patterning and the causes and conditions that have led to that patterning. I personally believe these are invaluable sources of insight. But in terms of Buddhist psychology, this is not what is called vipassana. Yeah. What is called vipassana is the insight into the three characteristics.
So having insight in what happened in your past or in the structure of your personality is not necessarily a transformative insight in terms of Buddhist psychology. It may be useful, but it needs more. You need to have a deeper insight into the universal characteristics of your experience. The specific characteristics are crucial. I believe they are part of every contemplative life. But the universal characteristics, impermanence, conditionality, impersonality, those are the ones which really make freedom. Those are the ones which really release the heart. So, ponder this image. Ponder the, um, the, the interplay, a mind that is mobile, a current that goes through this mind, an anchor that holds the boat in place, the arm that prepares the cut, and the actual cutting that uh, is the analogy for the activity of wisdom. I think it's a, it's a powerful little image. So, let us practice. There was a question about uh, the routine. I, my suggestion is that we are meeting here. You are meeting here. I sometimes am not here, but uh, I, my suggestion is that you're here at 6 in the morning at 8.30 for what we're doing now that you're here at 2 in the afternoon, and that you're here at 7.15. Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.